Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome back, everyone, to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans for episode 10, The Life of Chimon. Now, Chris, before I get started on the momentous life of Chimon, I would like to make a quick detour, if you don't mind. Sounds good. Well, as our listeners know, our principal source for this podcast has been the ancient historian Plutarch, and will continue to be for the rest of the podcast. But for the past several episodes in ancient Greece, we've also been leaning a bit on the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus. However, we'll be moving beyond the scope of Herodotus's histories going forward, and into the scope of the historian Thucydides. Traditionally, modern historians have preferred Thucydides to Herodotus because he analyzed his competing sources and made conclusions about what was most likely to have happened, whereas Herodotus tended more so to just record stories as they were told to him and mostly leave it up to the reader to determine if the stories are to be believed or not. With recent trends in historical scholarship, though, it seems that Herodotus' method is starting to become more popular again. Anyway, in any event, I didn't want to leave Herodotus in the rear view without sharing my favorite Herodotus story with listeners, since we have an extra couple of minutes today. Shortly after describing the Battle of Marathon, Herodotus tells us of a tyrant from the Greek city of Sicyon, who desired to have the best man of all the Greeks marry his daughter, and so he made a public announcement at the Olympic Games that any man worthy of marrying his daughter should make their way to his city within 60 days. Young men from throughout the Greek world answered the call, and when they arrived in Sicyon, Cleisthenes questioned them about their lineage, and tested them in various ways to discover their education, temperaments, and athletic ability. And through this process, an Athenian named Hippocleides, the son of Tisander, emerged as the frontrunner. When the day came to announce which of the suitors Cleisthenes had chosen to marry his daughter, he put on a great feast for the suitors, and all the people of the city. When the meal was done, the suitors put on a competition of music and public speaking, and Herodotus tells us that, quote, Hippocleides, who had established a clear lead over his rivals, ordered the oboe player to strike up a jig on his oboe, and then, when the oboe player did as instructed, began to dance. It appeared to the dancer himself that he was cutting a tremendous dash, but Cleisthenes, who was watching the entire performance, was signally unimpressed. In due course, Hippocleides paused in his dancing and ordered someone to bring in a table, on which, once it had been duly fetched, he began to perform some Laconian dance moves, then some different attic turns, before finally, for his third trick, standing on his head on the table and moving his feet to the rhythm as though they were his hands. During the first and second of these dance routines, Cleisthenes bit his tongue, appalled though he now was witnessing such a shameless display of dancing, at the notion of having Hippocleides as his son-in-law. He did not wish to make his displeasure public, though. The sight of Hippocleides pumping his legs in the air to the music, however, was the final straw. Son of Tisander, he declared, you have danced away your marriage, to which Hippocleides retorted, Hippocleides could not care less. And that was how the celebrated phrase first came to be uttered. <laughs> that is amazing. I was trying to hold back from laughing there <laughs> the last couple of seconds. <laughs> I, I know, right? I, I'm not sure which part I find funnier. Picturing the father, Cleisthenes, watching in disgust as a potential future son-in-law performs some kind of ancient Greek breakdancing moves on the table. Or the fact that Herodotus seems to be suggesting that following this incident, saying Hippocleides could not care less became a popular saying in the Greek world. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. Well, anyway, this this story is in no way connected to the Athenian Chimon, who is the subject of this episode. But I just had to give the listeners a taste of the type of 
entertaining stories contained in Herodotus' histories, before we leave him in the rearview. So, moving on to Chimon. Chimon came to adulthood in an Athens that was dominated by the personalities of Themistocles and Aristides, the subjects of episodes 7 and 8, and the events of the war with the Persian Empire. Chimon was the son of Miltiades, who you will remember was Athens' greatest star for a short time, after his bold leadership saved the city at the Battle of Marathon. But Miltiades quickly squandered his fame by convincing the city, well, tricking them really, to let him lead an ill-fated expedition against the island of Peros, which led to Miltiades being fined, and unable to pay the heavy fine, he was sent to prison where he died, probably of a gangrenous wound. This left young Chimon as an orphan, along with his sister Elpinike, who was also young and unmarried. The young Chimon developed a somewhat mixed reputation around Athens. He was unrefined and liked to drink, but he had a certain Spartan simplicity and nobility about him. Although some accused Chimon of having an unseemly relationship with his sister, with whom he continued to live, as her poverty prevented her from any suitable marriage. Well, that hardly seems like a fair accusation. No, it, it doesn't, but eventually a rich man named Callias fell in love with Elpinike, and offered to pay the fine which had been assessed to her and Chimon's father, Miltiades, if she would be his wife. Elpinike consented to the offer, so Chimon gave his approval to the betrothal. It seems to me that Elpinike must have had a very charming personality, or have been very beautiful, or both. If people were accusing her own brother of carrying on a relationship with her, and she was able to attract a suitor willing to pay the hefty fine of 50 talents that had been levied against her father. Well, she definitely must have had something going on. I think so. Now, when the Persians returned again to Greece, and Themistocles advised the Athenians to abandon the city and make their stand at sea, in the Straits of Salamis, young Chimon saw that many Athenians were uncertain and hesitant to follow Themistocles' sound advice. So he made a great show of marching down to the port, giving confidence to his fellow citizens. Plutarch writes that Chimon was of a fairly handsome person, according to the poet Ion, tall and large, and let his thick and curly hair grow long. After he had acquitted himself gallantly in this battle of Salamis, he obtained great repute among the Athenians, and was regarded with affection, as well as admiration. He had many who followed after him, and bade him aspire to actions not less famous than his father's battle of Marathon. So Chris, you will remember from the lives of Themistocles and Aristides, that following this victory in the naval battle at Salamis, the allied Greeks then won a conclusive victory at land over the Persians, at the battle of Plataea. I do indeed. Well, that same year, some ancients claimed the same day, the Allied Greeks also won another victory on the coast of Ionia, mopping up the remnants of the Persian fleet which had been assembled for the invasion. With these twin victories, the threat of Persian invasion had been ended for a time. Following these victories, Herodotus said that from the spoils of the Battle of Plataea, the Allied Greeks used bronze and gold from melted-down Persian weapons to create a bronze column of three entwined snakes with a golden tripod resting on top. The Allies dedicated this monument to the god Apollo, and it was placed next to the altar of Apollo at Delphi. This monument has had an interesting life of its own. The Roman Emperor Constantine later removed it from Delphi and transported it to his new capital of Constantinople. This city was later conquered by the Ottoman Turks and became Istanbul. The golden tripod on top of the column was lost at some point, and the heads of the bronze serpents were broken off, but if you visit Istanbul today, you can still see the serpent column, standing where the Hippodrome of Constantinople was once located. There's also a replica of the column that was created in 2015 and placed at Delphi, the original location of the column. Beyond this gesture of creating the monument, though, 
The Greek allies were not in agreement on how to proceed now that Persia had been defeated. The Spartans, for their part, considered it mission accomplished and time for everyone to go to their separate ways. By this point, you may have noticed a continued reluctance on the part of the Spartans to get too heavily involved in adventures beyond their home turf of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. The thing to remember about the Spartans is that their entire strength, basically, was dependent on control of the Helots, a population of slaves who outnumbered the Spartans and worked the land so that a smaller population of Spartan men could hone their skills and become a warrior elite. The Spartans always had to consider that if too many of their warriors were too far away from Sparta for too long, it might encourage the Helots to revolt. Besides this consideration, the average Spartan was traditional to the core and saw little gain in foreign adventures, and were satisfied with Sparta's current territory and position in the world. However, fresh off the twin victories in 479 BC, Athens and some of the other allies saw an opportunity to take the offensive and liberate the Aegean islands which had been conquered by Persia. The Spartans were currently the commanders of the Greek military alliance, and they didn't want to surrender this position, so they went along with this plan, leaving the Spartan regent Pausanias, who had commanded at the Battle of Plataea, in charge of this new mission. Disagreement on which direction to take wasn't the only source of tension, though, that was emerging. Following the city's destruction by the army of Xerxes, Athens was undertaking to rebuild its city walls, but Sparta urged them not to do this. The Spartans put forth some reasoning about not providing a base for the Persians should they return, but surely the real reason the Spartans wished for Athens to remain unfortified is so that they could march an army up there and easily occupy the city if they should ever feel the need to do so in the future. Athens at this point was obviously extremely vulnerable, and in no position to directly oppose the will of the Spartans, and so once again the cleverness of Themistocles was needed. Some report that Themistocles bribed the Spartan ephors, but most say that he bought time for the walls to be built by traveling to Sparta to discuss the matter, and denying that any walls were being built, all the while they were being built, and told the Spartans to send people to Athens to see for themselves, knowing that by the time they traveled to Athens and brought word back, the fortifications would be all but complete. Well, that's a very sound strategy. Agreed. Following this deception, Themistocles' next project was to work on establishing the harbor of Piraeus, a short distance from the city, and cement Athens as a city whose fate was tied to the sea. Ultimately, though, as we have seen, in ancient Athens, much as it still does today, greatness always seems to inspire jealousy, and Themistocles was not a modest person. He seemed to never tire of reminding Athenians of all he had done for the city. Eventually, it seems that enough people got tired of hearing it, and as Plutarch puts it, at length the Athenians banished him making use of the ostracism to humble his eminence and authority, as they ordinarily did with all whom they thought too powerful, or, by their greatness, disproportionate to the equality thought requisite in a popular government. For the ostracism was instituted not so much to punish the offender, as to mitigate and pacify the violence of the envious, who delighted to humble eminent men. Whether or not you agree with Plutarch's opinion of the Athenian institution of holding ostracism votes, it is certainly a fascinating aspect of Athenian democracy. Yes, and I seem to recall that Themistocles played a role in convincing Athenians to vote to banish Aristides, so it's kind of ironic that he is now on the losing end of an ostracism vote. Good point, and it is interesting to note that while it would have been understandable for Aristides to hold a grudge over that, it seems he actually was not one of those who were stoking public anger against Themistocles now. Plutarch writes that, Though Themistocles had been his adversary in all his undertakings, and was the cause of his banishment, Yet when afforded a similar opportunity of revenge, being accused to the city, Aristides bore him no malice, 
But while Alcmaeon, Caimon, and many others were prosecuting and impeaching him, Aristides alone neither did nor said any ill against him. Wow. Well, I do admire that, and I'd like to say I would do the same, uh, but I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think we would all like to think we would be noble enough not to kick an enemy while they're down, but if someone had got me banished from the city for several years, it would definitely be a challenge to restrain myself. Anyway, the diminishing popularity of Themistocles was a great opportunity for the good-looking young Chimon, with his impressive long hair, to get involved in the political scene. Plutarch says that when Chimon came forward in political life, the people welcomed him gladly, being now weary of Themistocles, in opposition to whom, and because of his frankness and easiness of his temper, which was agreeable to everyone, they advanced Chimon to the highest employments in the government. Aristides seems to have recognized Chimon's potential early on, and decided to take the young man under his wing. Chimon seems to have been by nature a simple man, who admired the Spartans and had conservative leanings, and so was a natural protege for Aristides. Plutarch reports that the man that contributed most to Chimon's promotion was Aristides, who early discerned in his character his natural capacity and purposely raised him so that he might be a counterpoise to the craft and boldness of Themistocles. So now with the allied Greeks going on the offensive, it was Chimon and Aristides who were chosen as joint commanders of the Athenian forces, though as I earlier mentioned, the overall command was in the hands of the Spartan Pausanias. It seems though that victory at Plataea and this new authority completely went to Pausanias' head, and he began behaving himself rather poorly, issuing commands to his allies in a haughty manner, ignoring their requests, and generally acting like something of a tyrant. It is also said that he was plotting and maintaining correspondence with the Persians. The last straw seems to have come when the allied Greeks were in the city of Byzantium. Byzantium, coincidentally, is the original Greek city that would later become Constantinople, and even later become Istanbul, just to tie things back to the story of the serpent column from earlier in the episode. It was originally said to have been founded by colonists from the Greek city of Megara in the 7th century BC. Anyway, while they were in Byzantium, a beautiful young local woman by the name of Cleonike unfortunately caught the attention of Pausanias. The parents of Cleonike sent her to Pausanias, fearing what the Spartan commander might do if they refused him. Plutarch writes that the daughter asked the servants outside the chamber to put out all the lights, so that approaching silently and in the dark toward his bed, she stumbled upon the lamp, which she overturned. Pausanias, who was fallen asleep, awakened and startled with the noise, thought an assassin had taken that dead time of night to murder him, so that hastily snatching up his knife that lay by him, he struck the girl, who fell with the blow, and died. Oh, wow. Oh, no. Yeah, so after this murderous incident, Pausanias was narrowly able to escape the city without being captured by his former allies. This was the end of Spartan command. They made no attempt to replace Pausanias with another Spartan, and the Greek allies looked to Athens to take up the lead, as Chimon and Aristides' honesty had endeared them to the allies in contrast to the corruption of Pausanias. When it was to be decided how much each city should contribute to the common defense, they turned to Aristides to assess how much each should contribute. Aristides lived up to his old title of Aristides the Just, and is said to have set the contributions at a fair level. Each member swore an oath, and curses against any that should break the vow, before flinging wedges of red-hot iron into the sea. This alliance became known as the Delian League, as the League's treasury was placed on the island of Delos in the Aegean, sacred birthplace of Apollo and Artemis. I've heard the Delian League described as almost like a NATO alliance for the ancient Greek cities of the Aegean Sea. Chimon, at the head of the Allies, now made a name for himself as a military commander with successes in Thrace in the northern Aegean, acquiring territory and establishing colonies. 
One island that was seized was the island of Skyros, had apparently become a nest of pirates. Extra points to anyone that remembers from way back in episode 1 that Skyros is the island where the hero Theseus died after being exiled from Athens late in his life. Well, after taking the island, Chimon made inquiries into where exactly Theseus was buried, and with some difficulty found the tomb, brought the relics into his own ship, and made a great show of returning the bones of Theseus to Athens. According to Plutarch, this act increased Chimon's reputation even more, which is illustrated by the incident afterwards in which he was called upon to be a judge of the tragic playwrights. Now, Chris, you may remember me talking briefly about the playwright Aeschylus before. Yeah, he's the one who fought the Battle of Marathon, right? That's right, he did. Aeschylus was like the godfather of Greek tragedy, and the new genius stepping onto the scene was Sophocles. Plutarch recounts that Sophocles had just come forward with his first plays, and the audience was split on whether Sophocles or Aeschylus should take the prize. Apparently things were getting very heated, and rather than cast lots as to who should be the judges, the Archon at the time, a man by the name of Epsiphion, turned to Chimon and the other nine generals, remember Athenians elected ten generals, one from each tribe of Athenians, and asked them to be the judges. This made the stakes even higher. With Chimon and the other generals as judges, more prestige would go to the winner. When young Sophocles was pronounced the winner, Plutarch says that Aeschylus took it so badly that he left Athens shortly after and went in anger to Sicily where he died. Wow. Well, you know what? I'd probably do the exact same thing. And you know, I hear Sicily's great this time of year, so... <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it was just time to retire. Anyways, it goes to show just how fiercely competitive the theatrical competition that was part of the city's Dionysia festival was, just like everything else in the Greek world. It also highlights the reputation of Chimon at the time, as Plutarch points out. Chimon also enhanced his reputation with the wealth that he brought home, including a significant sum gained from ransoming Persian prisoners captured at Sestos and Byzantium. Chimon was said to be very generous with his personal wealth, pulling down all fences around his property so that strangers could eat the fruit from his gardens. He lived a very simple existence himself and was able to give generously to others. While other great public figures seem to have used generosity as a strategy to gain popularity among the common people, Chimon seems to have done this with no apparent ulterior motive. As Plutarch points out, those who object to him that he did this to be popular and gain the applause of the vulgar are confuted by the constant tenor of the rest of his actions, which all tended to uphold the interests of the nobility. In other words, Chimon wasn't a politician out to gain the support of the poor folks. Politically, he was conservative. He just liked to share his wealth. He planted the marketplace with plane trees for shade, and the academy as well, which Plutarch says was a bare, dry, and dirty spot at the time. Chimon changed it to a grove with streams and shady pathways. Plutarch says that so much money was coming into Athens from the spoils of Chimon's military successes that they were able to begin work on the long walls, fortifications about six kilometers in length that would connect Athens with its port of Piraeus. This would take some time to complete, however. Speaking of Chimon's successes, sometime around 466 BC, at the lead of an allied fleet, he took the fight to Asia Minor and won a dual land and sea victory on the Eurymedon River in Pamphylia. Plutarch's description of the battle is a bit vague, but Chimon's forces defeated the Phoenician fleet and captured some 200 triremes. Then he landed his army and won a hard-fought land battle, capturing the Persian camp containing rich spoils. So this was a massive victory, on the scale of the Battle of Salamis or Plataea. Now, as it turns out, it wasn't too long before many, but not all, of the member states in the Delian League began to grow weary of contributing men and ships they had agreed to supply for the continued defense of the Aegean Sea. 
these cities wished to simply contribute money instead. This may have seemed like a more convenient arrangement to them, but it had the consequence of cementing Athens as the dominant member of the League. So while some Athenians initially resisted the idea, Cimon, seeing the advantage in it for Athens, fully supported it. Plutarch writes that he forced no man to go that was not willing, but of those that desired to be excused from service, he took money and vessels unmanned, and let them yield to the temptation of staying at home, to attend to their private business. Thus they lost their military habits, and luxury in their own folly quickly changed them into unwarlike husbandmen and traders, while Cimon, continually embarking large numbers of Athenians on board his galleys, thoroughly disciplined them in his expeditions, their enemies driven out of the country, and ere long made them the lords of their own paymasters. The allies, whose indolence maintained them, while they thus went sailing about everywhere, and incessantly bearing arms and acquiring skill, began to fear and flatter them, and found themselves, after a while, allies no longer, but unwittingly became tributaries and slaves. The changing nature of the Delian League was on display when the polis of Thassos in the northern Aegean attempted to leave the alliance due to a dispute over the ownership of a gold mine that the Athenians had appropriated. Cimon led a siege of Thassos and forced them back into the alliance. Despite Cimon's string of successes and his obvious popularity in Athens, there were some among his opponents on the more democratic side of the political spectrum who would still do their best to bring him down. Athens was a notoriously litigious city. Many of the laws were broad and vague, and lawsuits were common. The hilarious playwright Aristophanes wrote a play titled Clouds in 423 BC, and in it one of his characters is shown Athens on a map of the entire world, and he objects, It can't be Athens. I don't see any jurymen in session. (laughs) That could be a joke about the USA today, I guess. Yeah, one of the funniest parts of Aristophanes' political commentary is that Many of his witty observations are still quite familiar to us today. To be fair to the Athenians, though, the courts seem to have been open to abuse in some cases, and some of the trials were certainly excessive, but it also seems to have been the case that the courts were a vital part of keeping Athenian democracy honest. Okay, so there was good and bad about it. Yeah, much like other Athenian institutions. It's worth noting that some Athenian orators learned or sharpened their rhetorical skills speaking as advocates in the Athenian courts. Anyway, nobody was immune from being brought up on charges, and Cimon himself found himself charged with bribery. It was said that he had accepted a bribe from the king of Macedon to avoid any military action against the kingdom. Cimon's accusers pointed out Macedon had been a subject of Persia, and while Cimon was in the northern Aegean securing Thracian territory, he had an opportunity to acquire Macedonian territory as well, but didn't. This seems like pretty weak evidence that he had accepted a bribe, and Cimon responded by pointing out that his simple way of living showed he had no use for bribes or riches himself but that he had always been proud to bring riches to his city. One of those speaking against Cimon for the prosecution was a young Pericles, who we will see more of in episodes to come. Plutarch reports that, addressing herself to Pericles, Cimon's beloved sister Elpinike spoke in her brother's defense. Pericles responded with a smile, You are old, Elpinike, to meddle with affairs of this nature. However, Pericles proved to be the mildest of the prosecutors, and rose up but once all the while, almost as a matter of form, to plead against Cimon. Cimon was acquitted. Throughout his life, Cimon had made no secret of his admiration of the character and self-discipline of the Spartans. And after disaster struck Sparta in 464 BC in the form of an earthquake, Cimon proposed that the Athenians had aid their way. Plutarch says that there happened in the country of Lacedaemon the greatest earthquake that was known in the memory of man. The earth opened into chasms, and the mountain Tigetus was so shaken that some of the rocky points of it fell down, and except five houses, 
All the town of Sparta was shattered to pieces. Sounds very devastating. Yes, and at this moment of vulnerability, the Spartans' helot slaves took the opportunity to rise up and attack their overlords. The Spartans were able to repulse the initial attack due to the quick action of the Spartan king Archidamus. But the rebellious helots withdrew to the villages of the countryside and continued to resist. Perhaps unsurprisingly, in Athens, one's feelings on Sparta went hand-in-hand with one's political leanings. More conservative Athenians, such as Cimon, tended generally to favor a closer relationship with Sparta, while more democratic Athenians saw Sparta more as a rival and a potential threat. Even so, Cimon was able to rally support in Athens to send military aid to help the beleaguered Spartans deal with the rebellion. The Helots had seized Mount Nathomi by this point, as their stronghold, but when the Athenians arrived to lend aid to the Spartans in taking the mountain, their help was unceremoniously rejected by the Lacedaemonians. It seems the Spartans distrusted the revolutionary spirit of the democratic-minded Athenians and did not want them involved in the siege of the rebellious slaves, thinking they may end up sympathizing with the besieged helots. The Spartans did not come out and say this when dismissing the Athenians, however, but the distrust was evident. The Athenians returned home, and needless to say, this snub from the Spartans did not go over well. Athenians were outraged by the insult. Cimon's popularity took a big hit, and he soon afterwards found himself on the losing end of an ostracism vote and exiled from the city for 10 years. Wow, one little mistake and he's banished, eh? Yep, the Athenian populace could be unforgiving. But many see this incident as a turning point when relations between Athens and Sparta began to deteriorate to the point where conflict became unavoidable. Perhaps, perhaps not. But it certainly was a turning point in the life of Cimon. Cimon would return to Athens after his exile ended, and he even led another significant naval expedition, but he would never again enjoy the leadership role in Athenian politics that he once had. Following the banishment of Cimon, that role would increasingly be occupied by the statesman Pericles, who we will meet again in episode 11. Athens was moving in a more democratic direction now, and old-fashioned conservatives like Cimon were becoming less popular. Ironically, this democratic trend was in many ways fueled by the important role poorer Athenians were playing as rowers in the mighty fleet that Cimon had done so much to promote. Cimon could be proud of his legacy, though. In two short decades, with Cimon as leading citizen, Athens had gone from ashes to empire. Well, that's it for episode 10. Hope you join us next time for the life of Pericles. And as always, be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts, Check out the website at plutarchsgreeksromans.com for maps and other info, or look us up on Facebook. Thanks for listening.